This week on Geek Explained, we're wrapping up Spidey Month by talking about a comic that is near and dear to my heart. So in this debut edition of Geek Explained Spotlight, title pending, we'll be doing a deep dive on the classic masterpiece known as Spider-Man Blue. Welcome back to Geek Explain, the podcast for comics, film, TV, and more. You name it, we Geek Explain it. I'm your host, Eric Gazzana, and today's episode is talking about one of my favorite Spider-Man comics of all time. It might just be my favorite, and that is, of course, Spider-Man Blue. This is one of those iconic Spider-Man stories that I always recommend to people who are looking to get into Spider-Man, and we're going to be talking all about it today. Also, we're going to be talking about episode 9 of Swamp Thing in our weekly review series. We're heading right towards the end, as well as our comics countdown for this week. But for now, let's jump into our news segment. All right, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, we've got some news for you this week. Uh, Definitely a lighter news week than uh, last week with all the uh, San Diego Comic-Con stuff, but um, some stuff happened this week that I definitely think we're going to talk about. So um, starting off with, uh, of course, our divisions, our sections, we've got film, TV, comics, and miscellaneous, miscellaneous, why is that word so hard? Um... And we're going to start off with film. Uh, this is kind of jumping off of the uh, San Diego Comic-Con news from last week. Uh, talking about Marvel. Marvel Phase 5 specifically. Uh, for those of you who are in the know. Of course, Marvel Phase 4 was announced at San Diego San Diego Comic-Con, and a lot of people were a little confused by the announcement, not just because, A, there's no Avengers film announced, um, B, there were a lot of characters that were announced that don't really have a lot of uh, mainstream... I guess, appeal to them, like the Eternals. Uh, Not a lot of people know about Shang-Chi. But the big thing is that a lot of people were looking for some of the more crowd-pleasing, attention-getting announcements. I mean, having 
Thor Love and Thunder was really great. Uh, Mahershala Ali playing Blade was huge. But a lot of people were wondering about Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, um, especially ever since James Gunn was, of course, rehired to helm the project once again. Uh, James Gunn recently gave an interview talking about uh, why Guardians wasn't part of phase four why it wasn't on the announcement where he said that he is fully committed to finishing up his suicide squad film that he's doing for dc but you a lot of people forgot about that um and he said that he's going to start work on volume three once again once he is wrapped up with that film officially uh i think this bodes well for marvel seeing as how there was a uh there was a concern among a lot of people who are huge Marvel fans that since James Gunn was fired and they didn't really have somebody to helm uh, Volume 3 and then James Gunn was brought on to do Suicide Squad for DC that he was going to be jumping ship and would start to helm the DC films. But it seems like, at least for now, that's going to be kind of a one and done for him and then he's going to go back to finish out his Guardians trilogy. Um, we'll see if that ends up being the case, if he ends up kind of double dipping, but for now, he is focused solely on the Suicide Squad. Uh, also, a lot of people were hoping that we were going to get some announcements from the Fox properties, the X-Men, Fantastic Four, um, Galactus, Silver Surfer, any of those adjacent properties. And this kind of flew under the radar uh, because of all the announcements that came up during San Diego Comic-Con, but I want to make sure I talk about it here because this is uh, news regarding that. Uh, Kevin Feige did confirm that they are working on a Fantastic Four film that will that may take place in Phase 5. Um, as we know, Phase 4 is only going to be two years, making it the shortest phase in the entire history of the MCU, uh, occurring across just 2020 and 2021. So... That opens up a lot of possibilities for Phase 5, a lot of possibilities for beyond that, but I can pretty comfortably say that it'll probably, at least the Fantastic Four movie will for sure, uh, kind of land somewhere in Phase 5. Right now, the talk is that they have two directors in mind right now to helm the Fantastic Four film, one of which being Peyton Reed, who directed both Ant-Man and Ant-Man and the Wasp. Um, he has been pitching and uh, campaigning for this for a very long time. He loves those characters, but he's got some stiff competition because rumor has it that his opponent, I guess, or his, uh, his running mate against him in this race is going to be Brad Bird. If you don't know who Brad Bird is, you might know the property that he helped create and helmed both the original film and its sequel, that being The Incredibles, which in itself is a riff off of the Fantastic Four. So Brad Bird would be a perfect choice. He also directed one of, I think, the greatest Mission Impossible films. I'm a huge sucker for Mission Impossible films, and Brad Bird did a phenomenal job with that film. Um, I, you know, it's a toss-up between the two. I think just to uh, get fresh blood, because we're seeing a lot of the uh, similar directors coming back to Helm sequels and whatnot, we don't really know if Ant-Man's story is done just yet, and when it comes to uh, possibly completing a trilogy for his character, him and the Wasp, or just leaving them kind of in the lurch, I would much rather Peyton Reed focus on finishing out that trilogy before jumping into a new property. So I would go with Brad Bird. Um, the Incredibles is one of the 
greatest comic book films of all time even though it's not after a comic book property it's a superhero flick that definitely deserves its place in the annals of uh, superhero history the sequel was very very good i will say that the uh, initial film was better but he is a solid filmmaker who knows what makes a superhero family dynamic tick. So that's who I would choose between those two. And then Kevin Feige was also very careful when talking about uh, the X-Men. He said that they are exploring uh, the avenues that they can take with the property um, of the mutants. He didn't specifically say X-Men at no point. He said that they are looking at the mutants specifically and that they are going to be unlike anything that we've seen when it comes to that property on on the big screen so far. So I'm excited. Um, I also... Yeah, I'll I'll, I'll throw this in there. What the hell? Um, During the the San Diego Comic-Con... whole mcu panel and everything like that uh it was announced that simu liu um was going to be playing shang chi this after he posted up on twitter i think it was like december of last year basically calling out uh marvel and kevin feige to talk about uh shang chi so after that there was this just huge explosion this push on twitter for hashtag shoot your shot so basically like if there is a job that you want that you in any other situation would think oh you know there's not a chance of me getting this there's no way that they would consider me uh this kind of drive on twitter was basically to say hey screw that shoot your shot reach out to the people for your dream job and let them know that you want it so I I did that. I bought into it. I did that. And what I did, and uh, you can find this somewhere, I'm sure, on Twitter. I, uh, I tweeted out to Marvel Studios and to Kevin Feige that I would like to talk to them about Wolverine. Uh, for those of you who don't know, I've been a big fan of the character since I was a very little kid. Um, Logan, uh, Weapon X, Wolverine has been a big part of my life ever since I was a very small child, and I would love the opportunity to be able to bring him to life in the MCU. Um, I I have this passion for this character. I fit the comic book uh, proportions, I suppose, because I'm not the tallest guy. I'm five five, stocky, uh, and I just I think I'd be able to bring something special to the character that we haven't seen just yet. And I it also helps that I am a drastically different profile from Hugh Jackman, who is leading man, stud quality. And I think for uh, for the MCU, for the Wolverine character, if you want to make him feel like a different character and not draw immediate comparisons to Hugh Jackman's Wolverine, you have to make him part of a team. Uh, Hugh Jackman played a great leading man Wolverine, but if you want the X-Men to stand out as a group dynamic, as a family, and not just uh, Wolverine and his amazing friends, you need somebody who can, I don't know, play a good teammate. So, yeah. So I uh, I pitched that out on Twitter. Um, we'll see what happens. Who knows? Who knows? 
Uh, but anyway, getting back on track, um, continuing on with our uh, film news. Speaking of Marvel, uh, reports are going out right now that Andy Serkis has met with Sony about the Venom sequel. Don't know in what capacity, whether he'd direct it, whether he'd be part of it. Um, his mocap is legendary at this point. A lot of people are getting in the game now, but Andy Serkis really was the man who revolutionized it through his roles as uh, Gollum, Smeagol, um, his role is a Sme- not Smeagol, <laughs> uh, Caesar in the Planet of the Apes movies. He is a prolific actor when it comes to motion capture. So I think in this world where Venom is going to be a lot of motion capture, at least the first one was, and I'm sure the sequel will be just as much if not more, uh, he's a good guy to bring in in any capacity. And then finally for film news, we have the trailer for a long-awaited sequel, 10 years in the making, in fact, and that is Zombieland Double Tap. This is the sequel to the original Zombieland film uh, that was released in uh, 2019, or uh, 2009. 2009 is when it came out, and 2019 is when it officially releases. Um, this is awesome. The trailer looked great. The characters look like they have an aged day, except for Abigail Breslin, who has, of course, gone from a child into a woman. So um, it was really cool seeing these characters again, getting to um, revisit kind of the world of Zombieland, which is a decidedly more comedic version than the one that we uh, normally associate with the zombie apocalypse, like uh, Walking Dead, stuff like that. So I was really excited to see these characters again. Uh, they go to the White House, which I think is hilarious, and at a certain point they also run into doppelgangers, at least doppelgangers of uh, Tallahassee and... Uh... Why am I blanking? Oh no! Why am I blanking on his name? It's Tallahassee, and um, anyway, it's it's Jesse Eisenberg's character. I'll remember it at some point, and I'm sure somebody's screaming at me right now the answer. But um, yeah, I loved that. I don't know if that's going to be a plot point or if it's just going to be like a weird little fun cameo, but I'm here for it. Really excited. Moving on to TV news, starting off with uh, Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Lots of news coming out for this one. Um First of all, I'm going to address the rumors that were going on with that. Uh, Falcon and the Winter Soldier is coming, uh, not this year, but August of next year. Really excited. That's one of my most anticipated uh, properties coming out of Phase 4. And rumor is that this story or this show is going to be tackling the hashtag not my Captain America or hashtag give back the shield arc that was in the comics when Sam Wilson became Captain America. Basically how the government doesn't want Sam Wilson to be Captain America because of lots of bigotry and racism. I'm really excited. That was a fantastic story that I really think got cut short too quickly. Um, and I am really excited to see where they go with that. Um, also, there was a... Uh, there, there was a bit of controversy when this was announced, really stemming out of the reveal in Endgame that Sam Wilson was going to be the next Captain America, and that was a lot of people really disappointed at the lack of Bucky Cap. And I understand that. Bucky Cap is one of my favorite arcs for the character, not just for Captain America, but also for... Um, Bucky Barnes as a whole. I really enjoyed that arc for him, and I was really uh, 
honestly, it was a toss-up for me on who I wanted to see become Cap after Steve hung up the shield. When it did end up being Sam, I was totally okay with that. And apparently Sebastian Stan is too, because in an interview recently, someone asked him, like, how do you feel? Uh, Do you feel that Bucky should have been picked as Captain America? And Sebastian Stan, who I think has a pretty good authority on that character and how they feel at this point, um, really basically said, like, it makes no sense. It makes no sense for him to be Cap because he is his whole arc ever since the winter soldier has been him trying to find a life outside of basically his past. So it's pretty much what I said during our, uh, our review, which you can check out It's a giant sized episode. Um, it just, he, his whole arc in the films and the comics have made sense, but in the, his whole arc for the films has been him just trying to get away from the fight, get away from the war. His happiest moment post winter soldier is him being a sheep farmer in Wakanda. So like them just handing him the shield and being like, all right, time to jump back into war. Now makes no sense for the character. He wouldn't want it. And that's why it makes sense for Sam to be the one. So I really like that. I like that he addressed it and that he kind of, um, addressed it to the people who seem really disappointed that he isn't going to be cap i'm sure they have lots of ideas for him as a character where he could go um u.s agent could be one the white wolf of course uh nomad there's a lot of directions that character can go spinning out of this show so also quick note on uh tv news veronica mars the new season the revival of the show has debuted on hulu really really cool stuff um I wasn't a huge Veronica Mars fan when I uh, when it was first airing, but I think this is really great. I've caught a couple episodes of the original show, and I'm a sucker for detective stories, so I think this is definitely something to check out. And then jumping over to comics. Comics news. Uh, first off, some sad news here. Uh, the announcement that Champions... The basically uh, Marvel's Teen Titans book uh, is getting canceled with number 10. Uh, Jim Zub, the writer, put out a statement on Twitter basically saying that uh, with this new Champions run, he wanted to do something a little different, a little off the beaten path, and it didn't really connect with audiences. Uh, Sales were really low for this iteration of the Champions. I kind of jumped off after the initial run. Uh, just because the team changed, and I'm not—I I don't like change, <laughs> um, especially when it comes to them having built up a certain uh, group dynamic and a certain team. That when that run kind of ended and they all went their separate ways and developed a new team, I was—I didn't want to go through building a team again. That's just personally me. But um, this book is unfortunately getting canceled uh, at issue ten, which is out, I believe, pretty soon. Um, but Jim Zub did say that uh, Marvel has plans, big plans for the champions and the all the teenage heroes that are in that team for next year. So definitely look forward to that. In more exciting news when it comes to comics, um, first of all, I guess we'll stick with uh, Marvel here. They announced a new Ghost Rider book, which is really, 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 really cool. Especially when you take into account how they've been treating the character so far. Uh, this book actually won't be featuring Robbie Reyes, who's kind of been the premier Ghost Rider for a few years now showing up on agents of shield now he's part of the avengers in the comics uh this is actually going to focus on the original 
I guess the original modern day Ghost Rider, which is Johnny Blaze, as well as his brother Danny Ketch. Danny Ketch is an obscure Ghost Rider character, um, and I only say obscure because you think of Ghost Rider, you think either Johnny Blaze or Robbie Reyes. Not a lot of people remember that Danny Ketch was a Ghost Rider for a very long time. Uh, this book is going to be written by Ed Brisson and drawn by Aaron Cuter. You know how much I love Aaron Cuter's art. I'm super excited. I'll probably be picking this book up exclusively for the Aaron Cuter art. Ed Brisson's a fantastic writer. He's been writing X-Force. He's written uh, several Wolverine properties. But um, what's going to bring me to the dance with this really is the Aaron Cuter art. Uh, the cover was released. It looks fantastic. And this is the synopsis for the series. The brothers Ghost Rider are back. Johnny Blaze ain't just the king of hell, he's the warden too. He's the first line of defense between the demonic hordes trying to escape the joint and the lords of the other hells, making a play for his throne and all the power that comes with it, including a certain evil queen from his past. Meanwhile, Danny Ketch never wanted to be a ghost rider. Now that his brother's in charge downstairs, Ketch must take on the duty of Earth's spirit of vengeance full time, no matter how much he'd rather be doing anything else. So, I'm really excited. Um, it also uh, da, 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 it also f says, plus the first installment of the Caretaker Chronicles. Forget everything you thought you knew. Caretaker is kind of uh, the at least in Ghost Rider terms. He's the previous Ghost Rider, the very first Ghost Rider with the guns. Um, he's also kind of the guy who really set Johnny Blaze on the path of being a righteous Ghost Rider, not just a spirit of vengeance. So I'm excited. It sounds like a really cool book. And then finally in comics news, we have another look, a deeper look, a more in-depth look at the upcoming Legion of Superheroes book written by Brian Michael Bendis with art by Ryan Sook. They released, uh, I believe it was, Brian Michael Bendis was actually on uh, The Late Show with Seth Meyers, and they actually debuted a uh, piece of artwork showing off the full roster for the new team. Really exciting, lots of great looks on there. I was interested in some of them. Triplicate Girl looks fantastic. Um, I still really, really don't like uh, cosmic lads or cosmic boys uh, haircut it just still looks weird uh, we saw a new look for lightning lad which I thought was interesting um, and then also I, I want to say his name is Ron Var or Ron Vidar um, in the comics he was the last Green Lantern for the Legion of Superheroes in the 31st century before he was killed by Superboy Prime it looks like a version of him except because he's wearing the same uh green lantern mask that hal jordan and kyle rayner have worn in the past but uh he's decidedly yellow so i don't know if that means he's a sinestro core member how that works into uh sodom yachts and the green lanterns because in the 31st century just for some background uh the green lantern core is essentially dead uh the only Green Lantern left is Ron Vidar, or Ron Var, I can't remember his name. Um, and Mogo is also dead. The entire core was wiped out, and because Mogo's dead, there's no way to send rings out for uh, new potential ring bearers. And Sodom Yacht, who was the last torchbearer for the Green Lantern Corps, lives on the dead Mogo. And that's kind of 
what the situation is for the 31st century. That's why there's such rampant uh, galactic crime, how the Fearsome f- or the Fatal Five have been able to run rampant across the galaxy, uh, because there's no Green Lantern Corps. So I'm really interested to see the update on that. We do see uh, Superboy, John Kent, front and center, looking fantastic. And then... If you if you just peek off to the left over here near the left of the uh, of the picture, you see our boy Monel, our boy Monel, who is looking decidedly Asian, I must say, and I love that. I love that aspect. They kind of uh, went in that direction for the Justice League versus the Fatal Five cartoon film, and I really enjoyed the aesthetic there. And it looks like they're carrying that over. I also really. Um, I think his design looks better here than it did in the initial concept art. Uh, you know me, I'm a huge Monel fan. I'm excited to see that he's part of the Legion. I'm really interested to see how they're going to balance him and Superboy because of their similar power sets, but we will just have to wait and see. So that is it for comics news. Moving into miscellaneous news, uh, if you're a wrestling fan like I am, uh, All Elite Wrestling debuted its, uh, or I guess announced its debut its debut episode on TNT. It's going to be on Wednesday, October 2nd, uh, running basically against WWE's NXT brand. If you're not a, uh, a pro wrestling fan, this probably all sounds like gibberish to you, and I'm sorry. But I'm really excited. Their shows have been really good. Uh, all Out is coming at the end of August, so looking forward to that and looking forward to seeing how that sets up for their, uh, their first show. Also, uh, we got the first trailer for a new Blair Witch video game. Um, it looks pretty much like you would expect it to look. First person, uh, super creepy in the style of like Silent Hill, uh, first person Resident Evil, stuff like that. So it looks really, really good with the added um, blend of like the Blair Witch lore. So that looks really interesting. Um, also, I've got a couple uh, miscellaneous podcasts slash just me news. Um for those of you who don't know, Doomsday Clock has been a big deal. The uh, We talked about it previously uh, a couple weeks ago, how it's continuing to be delayed. Uh, we've just got a couple issues left for the, uh, for the series that was supposed to end last year. But it has consistently been DC's best quality book for the last two years. It is just fantastic. And on uh, YouTube, a YouTuber by the name of Comic Book Hunter has been putting together essentially a motion comic of each issue. Each issue he puts together sends each episode out as they go. Well, uh, episode two, which is covering uh, issue two of the series, released this week. And uh, if you listen to the back half of the episode, I mean, listen to the whole thing because it's fantastic. Um, near the back end of the episode, you might hear a familiar voice. Uh, I can finally announce, since it has now debuted on YouTube, that I am playing Lex Luthor in the uh, in the Doomsday Clock uh, motion comic on YouTube. It's the uh, project itself is is called uh, Project Doomsday. If you just go on YouTube, type in Project Doomsday, you will see it there. The right now he's only got the first two issues. Uh, second issue just released this week on YouTube. So check it out. Um, let me know what you think. I 
jumped at the opportunity of getting to play Lex Luthor, and um, it's something different. I never thought I would be voicing Lex Luthor, but it was a really exciting challenge and fun to jump into uh, certain inspirations on the character, who I kind of leaned into when wanting to strike my version of that character. So I had a blast. Definitely check it out. I'm really excited. I'm really proud of the work that was all put into it. And then finally, also big news, not necessarily for the podcast, but for me, and since it's my podcast, I'm going to talk to you about it. Um, I booked my first voiceover gig. I'm really, really excited. Um, I finished recording it. I recorded it initially on uh, Monday. It was my initial recording session. And then uh, Tuesday, today, as I'm recording this, it's going to be releasing on Wednesday. So yesterday, technically. I went back for some pickups to kind of clean some stuff up. And I... Oh, guys, I'm super excited about this. Um, really, really excited. It's my first professional voiceover gig. I've been working really hard for the past two years to get myself ready for an opportunity like this. I self-submitted for this, um, went through a couple rounds, and I was able to, I was fortunate enough to be chosen by the producers and the director to be part of this project. Um, it's really exciting. It's a documentary. I don't want to say too much about it because I really want you to uh, go check it out. Uh, it's going to be debuting on uh, at the Venice Film Festival and then will be at a later date showing up on Showtime. So I'm just... Ah, I'm buzzing about it. Really, really excited. It's a documentary that is focusing on the uh, Filipino Revolution uh, when they kind of ousted uh, President Marcos and his wife Imelda from the seat of power that was the Philippines and kind of all the ramifications of that as well. So if you hear about a documentary about that, it's probably the one I worked on. I'm really excited. They've been working on it since uh, 2014. I really want you to check this out uh, when it does... Uh, debut. I will, of course, let you all know when it does so that you can check it out. I'm just, I'm really excited. And it's a huge first step for me in my uh, early stages of my career as a voice actor. So um, yeah, big, big, big week for me. So um, yeah. So that is going to do it for uh, this week's news segment. Um, just a ton of stuff, not a ton of stuff when compared to last uh, last week, but some really important stuff this week happened, uh, not just in the geek world, but also in my world. So yeah, so uh, without further ado, we're now going to jump over to the main course of the uh, episode, the entree, if you will, which is a full breakdown, review, and kind of gushing about how much I love Spider-Man Blue. So one of the major reasons that I love reading comics, um, love the superhero genre in itself, uh, is how much you connect with these characters. When you take out like all the flights and the tights and the battles and the bombastic storytelling, uh, they really are 
character pieces. Uh, they can be done badly, absolutely, and some uh, comics are really just all flash and no substance. But the big comics, the ones that stay the course, the ones that stand the test of time, are comics that look introspectively at the heroes that are the focus of the story. They're arcs, they are plots, they are narratives about what makes that character tick and how being a superhero, how being um, constantly looking over your shoulder and trying to save the world while also balancing out the fact that you need to have your own life, uh, those are the ones that really grab me and that's why I connect so much with characters that have stories like that. Um, a lot of the long-standing characters that we are in love with as comic book fans today, Superman, Batman, uh, Captain America, these are characters who have suffered tragedy and endure sadness in their everyday lives. But certain characters endure it on almost a daily, uh, daily experience. Certain characters have to deal with it on the regular, and one of those characters is, of course, Peter Parker, Spider-Man. Um, Peter Parker's life has been fraught with tragedy and sadness, and a lot of times the moments that I connect so much with the character is when he's going through adversity like this. Uh, different moments in his life where he's had to really struggle and really push through... Um, all of the negative stuff to fight on for another day is stuff that inspires me and has inspired me as a kid why I was drawn to the character uh, at an early age and I think when you look back over his uh, however many decades long uh, career his history as a character there's one big event in his life that has ramifications all throughout his history and all throughout his crime-fighting career. There's one incident that changed his life and changed the course of his life after he became Spider-Man. Of course, Uncle Ben and the murder and the tragedy of that really set him on the path to being Spider-Man, but there was an incident that happened later on in his career as Spider-Man that really shaped how he treats everything in his life going forward after that and that is of course the death of Gwen Stacy and in no other comic is it better handled than in Spider-Man Blue uh, written by Jeff Loeb and Tim Sale they are a comics duo that I think is not talked about enough they are the team that did such works as The Long Halloween uh, Superman for All Seasons, books that really elevated characters in DC and really made them timeless. In Marvel, the duo went over and they did a series of um, miniseries, different one-shots that were spread across you know, five or six issues, self-contained stories kind of reflecting on the careers of these characters and how um, looking back at certain tragic uh, figures in their lives, how certain tragic events in their lives shaped them and turned them into the heroes that they became. And unofficially, this is called the uh, the Marvel Color series. This includes Daredevil Yellow. This includes Hulk Gray. This includes the long-awaited Captain America White. But out of those stories, out of this whole series, the one that has really always stood out to me 
is Spider-Man Blue. Um, it's just, it's a fantastic book. It really is. If you haven't read this book, first of all, there are going to be spoilers. So um, if you haven't read the book and you want to read it, I implore you to read this book. Uh, pause this now, check it out, come back, and uh, let's discuss. But I really, I really think that out of them, and as a huge Captain America fan who waited for years to get Captain America White, I still think that Spider-Man Blue is the best story on the Marvel side that Jeff Loeb and Tim Sale ever crafted. Um, Spider-Man Blue really takes a look at a character who has suffered throughout his entire life losing his parents at a very young age, uh, losing Uncle Ben, the numerous tragedies that he's had to endure while being a superhero. But they really take a look at how Gwen Stacy's death affected him. And I absolutely love it. I have my notes here. I'm going to talk about it a little bit. I'm going to take these beat by beat, talking about certain characters, certain aesthetics, certain inspirations, why I love this series so much. So first of all, we have to talk about Peter Parker. Uh, Peter Parker is many things to many people. Uh, to some people, he is Tobey Maguire. Uh, to some people, he is Tom Holland. Uh, to some people, he is the pure embodiment of never giving up and always getting back up when you're knocked down. And this story, I think, really encompasses every single thing that is good about this character, which also includes how introspective he can get sometimes, how um, just how much tragedy and unfortunate events really shape him as a character. Uh, this story, to uh, kind of set the scene, uh, takes place on Valentine's Day. Um, at least the modern day stuff does. So Spider-Man is going to the bridge, the fateful bridge that uh, he had that climactic encounter with the Green Goblin and where, of course, Gwen Stacy died. He always goes to the bridge every Valentine's Day and leaves Rose at the place where Gwen Stacy was tossed off the bridge in kind of a memorial for her. Uh, no one knows that he goes there. He makes it very clear through his narration that no one knows that he goes there. He just does it. It's something that he has to himself as a way to talk to or as a way to um, honor the life of the person who really was his first love. And I love this. I really, really like this. Um, a lot of people um, have bantered back and forth on who uh, Peter Parker's true love is, who really is the one and only uh, love of his life. Some people will say Mary Jane Watson. Some people will say Gwen Stacy. Um, I go back and forth on the issue, but I usually settle in pretty well with Gwen Stacy um, just because I love that character. I love how just how complimentary she was to Peter as a person, especially at the time that they were together when they were in college. And this book really focuses on Peter looking back, almost in the same way that some of us look back on previous relationships, on previous events in our lives, on a period of our life. Peter looks back at all of his interactions with Gwen Stacy in rose-colored glasses. And I love that. I love that he is consistently looking back on these times when he 
coulda, shoulda, woulda gone up and really just spent more time with Gwen because as he puts it, he wanted to spend the rest of his life with her. He just didn't know that that would mean she would spend the rest of her life with him. And he, after making his way to the bridge, dropping off the rose, he goes back home and he finds, while rifling through the attic, a tape recorder. And what follows is every issue him making a new tape to kind of talk to Gwen, because this is years down the line. He is a full-grown adult. Uh, he is married to Mary Jane at this point, and he is just reminiscing. We all get there sometimes. Sometimes, you know, we'll be going through a perfectly normal day, or there will be a day that is really uh, significant to us, and we will just drop everything that we're doing because we get so stuck on an idea, so stuck on a memory, that you just have to address it. You have to face it head on. And that's what Peter does here. He recounts all of the trials and tribulations going up to uh, meeting Gwen, going into courting Gwen, and finally falling in love with Gwen and getting into an honest-to-goodness relationship with her. And it is some of the best and well-paced storytelling that I've ever seen, especially when it comes to Peter Parker as a character. Um, for background, his... Uh, Kind of his position, I'm going to readjust here, uh, his position in the story when it came to the comics, he was the dweeb, he was the nerd in high school, but when it came to college, he was much more um, outwardly uh, well-liked. I would say he started, you know, going from the glasses and the uh, sweater vests into slicked back hair and a blue, baby blue suit that he wore all the time because in the 60s, uh, being a grown-up meant wearing a suit all the time for some reason in college. And um, he suddenly found himself flocked to by women on all sides. Uh, this was when he was really uh, head over heels with Betty Brant. Um, his doomed romance with Gwen Stacy, and of course the introduction of Mary Jane. Uh, a lot of people forget that through Peter's high school career, none of these characters were really part of it, except for one Flash Thompson. Flash Thompson was really the only character that kind of carried across out of the high school era into the uh, college era. The high school era I kind of see as the Ditko era, college era was Ramita Sr. And they just, um, it's really interesting when you go back and you think about this entire uh, supporting cast that we now know uh, Peter to be almost um, identified with really didn't show up until his college years. And so this book takes a really nice look back at those stories. Um, and no more so focus does it give than to one Gwen Stacy. Uh, Gwen Stacy is portrayed exactly how a lot of people remember her um she's got class she's got sophistication but she has a wandering eye when it comes to peter she is intrigued by him immediately she really wants to get to know him better and when mary jane shows up she goes into this kind of um just back and forth battle this subtle really uh catty kind of back and forth thing with mary jane there's one scene that i love uh after peter just got the crap kicked out of him by the vulture more than the villains later um and he's resting in his bed 
Mary Jane brings him breakfast in bed. Uh, then Gwen shows up to read him a book. Like, Peter's got it all. Don't get me wrong. Peter's gone through a lot of tragedy. But at this point, he's got two beautiful women who are trying to take care of him. And um, just the dialogue between Gwen and Mary Jane is so funny. Like, um, Gwen is basically saying how Harry's taking her to a... Uh, to a Broadway play. Mary Jane's like, oh, I heard it was terrible. And Gwen goes, yeah, you would know. How was your acting career, by the way? And it's just so funny. It's like so, oh, got her. Like, it's the back and forth between them is fantastic because Gwen and uh, Mary Jane are also very, very different characters. Gwen is much more subdued, much more subtle, um, shy in a way, where MJ is all party all the time. She's very... Uh, I don't want to say promiscuous, but she's very confident in herself, and she's very she knows what she wants, and she goes for it every time. And I love that they really do a great job of differentiating the characters, when at the time, you know, it might not have been as clear-cut. You know, a lot of times in comics, especially when they have, um, I would say when, when we're looking at older comics, or comics that are written by... Uh, people are drawn by people who really don't have a lot of range, you lose track. Like one of the big uh, deals with DC Silver Age and the Super Friends show is that all of the heroes are essentially the same character, just wearing different costumes. And I love that this book not only... Um, visually, in the art, differentiates Gwen and MJ, but also differentiates them by their writing and their personalities and their actions um gwen is positioned as this just idealized perfection of her which i know is not who the character was but of course once again this is peter's memory this is peter's flashbacks so this is how he chooses to see her he even says in numerous times across the story how this is just how he chooses to remember something um because he is of course the unreliable narrator and i i love that because when you look back on things i'm i'm a really introspective guy um of course, you can judge that by me sitting alone in a room and speaking into a microphone for an hour every week. But I, I sometimes, you know, you get in these moods and I look back on things, uh, past relationships, past moments in time, and I really just go through these whole stages of like uh, remembering something, regretting something bad that happened, realizing that it was probably for the best, and then also seeing things that probably weren't that great, but in my memory, I choose to remember the good stuff. And I really love that aspect of this story. And of course, that comes out in the depiction of Gwen Stacy. But as we mentioned earlier, Mary Jane is also a prominent force here. Uh, she doesn't show up until, I believe, the end of the second issue leading into the third issue. And from there, she is just uh, dialed up to 10 in a firecracker for the rest of the series. She goes where she wants, when she wants. Uh, at one point, she says where... Mary Jane goes, the party follows, and she immediately is interested in Peter and stops at nothing to let him know how interested she is, while at the same time letting him know that she is not going to wait up for him, that she doesn't wait for anybody, and that she's going to continue moving with or without him. And that's something that I think is really one of the defining characteristics of Mary Jane Watson, something that a lot of people, I think, kind of overlook 
and especially um, in recent years, they've been really trying to recapture uh, this idea that Mary Jane can be an entire character without Peter and that she has her own life and her own goals. And I think that's really cool how um, that's actually translating into a new Amazing Mary Jane comic that's coming this year. But in this book, you see how different she is from Gwen. Because unlike Gwen, who is very subdued, she's very... Um, I guess prim and proper in her way of kind of quote-unquote courting uh, Peter. Mary Jane is instantly calling him my guy. She is, you know, kissing him on the forehead, like bringing him breakfast in bed, like all of these things that you would see from a very self-confident woman who knows what she wants and goes after it. And I love that there's that... Um, there's that comparison and that contrast between the two characters. Uh, we do see her at the end of the story in modern day, years later, and you can see how much she's changed, not only in her um, her wardrobe choice, but also in the way she talks, in the way that she addresses Peter, how she's not just like, bam, 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 all over the place. Uh, she's also grown and she's matured and she's um, evolved, in a sense, as a character. Uh, where in the flashbacks you would see she could get very catty and she could get very jealous and um, really clashed with Gwen on numerous occasions, not just in this story, but also in the original um, Lee and Ramita Sr. run, uh, clashed with Gwen over Peter. You see in this future or in this present day that she has matured and that she tells Peter, even though she knows what he's doing, he's talking to his dead ex-girlfriend um, who he doesn't seem in a way to have ever gotten over. And she basically tells him, you know, tell her I said hello and that I miss her too. And you really get the sense that Gwen, Gwen's whole uh, impact on the lives of all of them really... Um, really is felt even today as a character uh, and you also see that in our two kind of supporting characters our Rosencrantz and Guildenstern if you will of uh, Harry Osborne and Flash Thompson uh, Harry Osborne I have never seen him more compelling as a character uh, than in this story he is uh drawn so radically different from everyone else he seems like he's from a completely different story just the proportions he almost has like a pinocchio nose and his awful haircut which somehow has um stood the test of time for some reason everyone else's uh looks have changed over the years but not harry harry and norman always have the same stupid haircut but that's neither here nor there um harry osborne has really um is really compelling in the story because you see how uh, initially he's skeptical of Peter just as a person, but he really takes things to heart very quickly and he wears his emotions on his sleeve. So when uh, Peter comes to visit Norman in the hospital, he immediately is like, you don't owe me anything. Like we're not even friends, but you coming here really just means so much to me. And that culminates in him being like, hey, my dad's still, you know, in the hospital and stuff. Like he's got a uh, an apartment, a really nice mind you, apartment in uh, upstate New York that is just collecting dust, you should move in with me rent-free um, just to say thank you for caring. And you see certain aspects of Harry that I don't think are played up enough. The fact that he does come from privilege, the fact that he comes from uh, growing up with Norman Osborn as a father, which could not be 
easy whatsoever someone having that kind of like expectations on you without really seeing the value in what you bring to the table and I really, I, I find that so compelling about the character because you see not only how that affects his relationship with uh, Norman and with Peter, but also how that reflects his relationship with other people. You see that in one issue, he's, you know, going after Mary Jane and tells Pete, you know, like, hey, if you're not interested in her, then I'm going to, you know, shoot my shot, if you will. And then the next issue, when Mary Jane seems to be more focused on Peter, uh, he's taking Gwen to a Broadway show. Like, he sees that his way of communicating is um, basically fast times and money. And even though that is the case with his character and how he, how his love language is expressed, you see that he also has the best intentions. He has a really good heart at the end of it all and he really wants to be as close to his friends as possible and make them all feel at home jumping over to mr uh, eugene flash thompson he goes through an arc in this story as well uh flash thompson is a character who i don't think gets enough credit for being part of peter's supporting cast since the very beginning and he recently uh not last year, but I think the year before. It was Spider-Man um, 800, where uh, he was killed by Norman Osborn as the Red Goblin. And he, at this point, he had had a full life where he had, you know, been the bully, grown into a better person, joined the army, lost both of his legs overseas, come back, bonded with the Venom symbiote to become Agent Venom, went out into space with the Guardians of the Galaxy, became Venom Space Knight, came back, had the Venom symbiote uh, removed from him, got the Anti-Venom symbiote, became Agent Anti-Venom, and then sacrificed his life to save Peter. So at this point, he has lived a full life, being one of Peter's closest friends. But at this point, this is a Flash who's very much still um, under construction, if you will. He's a character who you see is starting to come to the realization that his best days are behind him. There's a moment where he's talking about, he's like, you know, I was, I was big man on campus in high school. I was the star quarterback, and now Peter Parker's getting all the girls. Like, I just don't understand it. And his inability to adapt and change with the times is really what affects his character and how he interacts with people. Because he still sees Peter as puny Parker from high school, even though he's constantly hanging out with Peter, along with Gwen and Mary Jane and Harry Osborn. And that quintet of friends really shapes all of them moving forward. Um, Harry being stuck alone with his father wouldn't have gotten as far and had as much, I think, of a full um, college experience and a full life if he hadn't had those friends around him. And the same with Flash. You see how Flash really could have stayed that one-dimensional uh, character, but his friendships with these people really changed him. And you see that in the way that he um, decides to join the army after being saved by Spider-Man in one of the later issues when he's tangling with the Vulture. Um, he's saved by Spider-Man, and you see just how much of a fan he is of Spider-Man, which is a character trait I've always loved about Flash Thompson, how he just cannot stand Peter, but loves Spider-Man. He's a huge fan of him. Um, after he saves him, you know, Flash is like, you're Spider-Man, like, you saved my life. And Peter's like, yeah, I know with the... Uh, 
the bugle says, but I actually do save people. And he's like, oh, I don't even listen to them. Like, they're they're all dumb. They don't know what you do. You're saving it, people's lives out there. You know, look at you, what you've done with your life. And that becomes kind of his arc, is him suddenly looking introspectively on what has he done with his life. And that ends up resulting in him joining the army. And because this is taking place in the uh, late 60s, we are looking towards him going to uh, Vietnam, which, uh, as a side note, was a great, great um, choice for a plot point in the uh, Spider-Man Life Story series by Chip Zdarsky and and, uh, Mark Bagley. If you haven't read that yet, check it out. Um, But seeing all of them interact with each other, you see Flash finally... Uh, go from calling him Parker to calling him Peter uh, when they throw that going away party for him and you f- you feel the change throughout all of these characters over the course of this story um, and that really I think lends itself a lot to the original inspiration which is the Lee and Ditko run as well as the Lee and Ramita Sr. run in the uh, stylings, the characters all of these characters were created in the mid-60s in the early to mid-60s and all of them after a while really kind of started to take on traits of their own so certain characters look and act widely, wildly different from who they were at their inception. And in this story, I think what Jeff Loeb and Tim Sale do is they blend aspects of our modern-day preconceptions of these characters with the classic, purest version of them that existed, you know, years before I was born. <laughs> and I, I love that. I love the blending of these characters. The um, the dialogue between all of them feels very Stanley. The action, the um, movements feel very uh, Ditko with some Ramita, of course, as well, because he was the main artist during this period of time in the comics. And some of the uh, some of the aspects of it, like uh, Peter's banter, the uh, the general aesthetic of it being a very '60s looking book. Uh, both in the technology as well as some of the slang. Uh, one point, uh, or throughout the story, really, MJ calls Peter PDO. And some of the just the funny, like, it, it feels like you're taking a, you're putting time in a bottle and letting us view it from the outside. And I love that aspect of it. Um, and that also brings itself out in the rogues gallery that's featured here. You essentially get the Sinister Six, more or less, in the story. You get the Green Goblin from the outset, from the very beginning of the story. You also get the Vulture, both versions of him, both the uh, Adrian Toombs as well as the uh, Blackie... Uh, I can't remember his name, but he's the younger... Um, vulture you get the lizard you get scorpion you get the rhino you get um craven the hunter like all of them show up and i just i think that's fantastic they are all utilized here perfectly and what i love is that the story is recontextualizing and readapting these original stan lee stories that were actually part of the print this this isn't drawing from um, made up stuff. This story is basically a uh, readaptation of those early Spider-Man comics. You could read this and get the basic gist of that original run based off of the interactions, like certain confrontations with like the Rhino, with the Vulture, with Craven. 
with the lizard even are ripped straight from those original stories almost beat for beat at some points and that's you know that really makes itself known through the dialogue and through the aesthetic of the story um, and that 60s aesthetic really helps sell it for me i look at kind of the uh the 50s and 60s as like pure americana because a lot of people look back at that and it's like you know the kennedys the uh greece like that moment that period of time i think is so fascinating because it's what everybody was like you know we're post-war we're in a post-war era and anything seems possible and that really brings itself um to the forefront with this story where anything seems possible even though you do have a tired um regretful almost peter parker narrating all of it in one of the greatest uh i think one of the really greatest um aspects of this book where all the modern day stuff has a blue wash over it while all the flashbacks are vibrant in color um you see that come out in this in this story you see how everything is so lit up with color and people are so dynamic with their movements that it's like anything's possible we've got our entire lives ahead of us and then when you go back to the modern day stuff it's all looking back it's all sitting in a house it's all um very melancholic and i really really enjoy that um and what i also really enjoy is that this at its core, beyond it being a superhero story, beyond it being a Spider-Man story, this is a personal story of someone who is remembering someone he lost. Um, all of us have lost someone at one time or another. Uh, this week, actually, um, uh, this week marks the uh, birthday of my mama, who uh, passed away a couple years ago. And it's always like around this time that I... Um, sorry um that i look back on um interactions that i had with her times that i shared with her and you look back and you always wish that you had more time or that you understood that your time was limited so you wish you could go back and spend more time or talk about the things that matter instead of the stuff that you kind of look back now and you realize really didn't matter at all and so um uh, it's not it's not difficult to sympathize with Peter in that way, looking back at times that he's shared with someone who meant the world to him and who whose loss he feels every single day. So I love that they balance his personal story and his personal growth and this uh, tale of him remembering someone he lost with the bombastic action of a superhero flick. You get plenty of action set pieces, fighting the rhino, uh, going through the sewer and fighting off the vulture, or uh, the lizard, fighting vulture in the skies of New York, um, having a final confrontation with uh, Craven on the rooftops outside of their loft. Like, there is plenty of action to be found here but the main crux of the story is very personal and very intimate which i really enjoy um the main kind of themes of this story really focus on longing for a simpler time he says it on uh, more than one occasion how he longs for a simple time when everything you know really the world was ahead of us and 
he you know just seemed like the good times could never end and that everything everything and every anything was possible and also the regret that he feels for not just because it's easy to go into a story like this and be like oh peter really regrets that he wasn't able to save gwen and yes that is absolutely part of the story but anyone who's lost somebody um knows that it's not the loss the actual event of the loss of that person it's all of the time that you could have and should have spent with that person before that happened and so it's um it's heavy it's a heavy subject matter especially if you kind of equate it to your own life like i do um Anytime that I really get keyed in on a story, it's when I find aspects of the character or the narrative that resonate with my background or my experiences. And I think that's true for a lot of people. And when you read this book, you really connect to Peter Parker as a person, as someone who is filled with regret, who really wants to um, figure out a way to look back on these times without feeling like he failed. And what I love is the end of the story the end of the story and we're going to wrap this up because um i could just i could talk about the story for hours and hours and hours but i don't want to keep you for too long <laughs> um what i love about the story is near the end he talks about um how much gwen's death impacted them um it impacted harry because he really took stock of his life past the material he really hit flash because he was suddenly losing people outside of the battlefield it hit mary jane because she realized that we don't live forever and that the time that we have is precious and that kind of reshaped her, not just her worldview but how she interacted with peter and with everyone in her life and it hit peter because it made him realize that even when everything is going right um bad things can still happen and that when bad things do happen you have the power and the responsibility to move past it so um the end of the story he's talking about how much her death affected everyone and how much he misses her and how much he really longs for a time that all of them were together not just with gwen he never um in this like ending point tells her i wish it was just me and you again he longs for a time that they were all together because whether flash likes to admit admit it or not all five of them were close friends and they learned and they lived and they grew together until they were all of course um until they all of course drifted apart for whatever reason but once again mary jane kind of walks up to the attic and peter is just mortified because he's like how long were you there i'm sorry um this is just a really hard time for me and mj is so understanding when you know back in you know the flashback time you know young mj would have been like you know you need to put focus on me tiger and all that stuff um she's very like she understands because she knows she was friends with gwen too and she understands that her loss like the loss of gwen stacy hit all of them and so she just basically tells peter like do what you gotta do tell her i say hello and that i miss her too and uh peter finally i think with that because a lot of his story in this book was him kind of 
locked in this love triangle. Or I guess if you want to consider it a square with Harry, uh, between him, Harry, Gwen, and MJ. Um, him finally being able to thank her for the impact that she had on his life. And even though now he longs for a simpler time when they were all together, he also recognizes through recording these tapes and reminiscing that that uh, that event doesn't define him. It doesn't define them. And that you can move past stuff like that while still remembering how much you loved the person that you lost. So, um... Yeah, that's Spider-Man Blue. Um, I I love this story uh, going from, you know, almost depression through remembrance and finally getting closure is a story that I think we can all relate to on one uh, level or another. And I think if you haven't read this story, you owe it to yourself to read this story. Um, I really wanted to finish off Spidey Month with this because I can pretty confidently say that if it isn't the uh if it isn't my favorite it is absolutely in my top three favorite spider-man stories of all time and it is something that is timeless it is something that will stick with me for as long as i live and it is something that i never get sick of reading um to get back and you know put all my notes together and get this episode together i reread through it probably like twice over the past week through uh, the Comixology app because I, when I first read through it years and years ago, I had a hard copy. I had a physical copy and um, through the uh, the several movings that I did throughout my life in the last you know 10 years or so, um, it got lost in the shuffle and I've never been able to find it. I, I've been hunting for years now for a physical copy of Spider-Man Blue, but I was really, really happy to be able to uh, find it through the Comixology app, and it's free. So you owe it to yourself if you have, I believe if you have Unlimited. It is free to view. Um, I just you know, downloaded the app on my tablet and read through it. It is an excellent story. It is one of the best Peter Parker stories, and it is a real, it is a, real honest-to-God tragic love story, and that is something that stands the test of time no matter what genre it's in. And because of that, you can ask me, you know, 10 years ago, you can ask me 10 years uh, in the future, you can ask me 20 years in the future what your, uh, what the story, what Spider-Man story will hit me the hardest and what Spider-Man story that I connect to the most, and uh, no matter how much uh, time passes. I don't think there is ever going to be a Spider-Man story that I love more than Spider-Man Blue.
And of course, those haunting melodies can only mean one thing. It is now time for the weekly review. This is the segment of our podcast where I review something weekly. And right now we are in the twilight of the saga of the Swamp Thing. This is the live action Swamp Thing show on the DC Universe streaming service and app. And this week we are going to be taking a look at episode 9 entitled The Anatomy Lesson. Quick uh, little Easter egg, I guess. This uh, title, The Anatomy Lesson, was the title of the very first Swamp Thing story. So that's, I think it's pretty cool. It's pretty cool that I always pop for like little things like that, where they uh, they use the titles of classic stories or characters for uh, episodes or the titles of films. Um, that's always something that I get really excited about for no reason, but I wanted to share that with you. So uh, this episode was really interesting. This episode actually uh, continued the forward momentum of last week's episode uh, and really just kicked it into high gear. So I'm really excited to talk about this. Uh, the episode mainly focused on the kind of back and forth between Swamp Thing and uh, Jason Woodrue. We finally got that confrontation uh, after the last episode cliffhanger where Swamp Thing was captured by Avery, uh, Woodrue, and those soldiers. And we find out that this episode really is just about Woodrue essentially dissecting Swamp Thing, pulling out different pieces of him, uh, just the interactions between the two of them. Woodrue goes full-on mad scientist here, um, which I was kind of worried about as the as the season went on because I really liked the uh, the plot device of his wife and him going to these lengths and being this kind of crazy person to uh, solve her illness and try to fix her uh, her dementia. So I really was hoping that we were going to get more of that and I was really worried at the start because I was like, oh, this is going to be an episode just about him just going all wacko on a Swamp Thing. But luckily, uh, his wife did play a very heavy role in this episode and I really enjoyed that. Uh, we also finally, finally, finally followed up with our boy, Dan Cassidy, the Blue Devil, as well as the Phantom Stranger. Uh, Cassidy is waking up from his coma. The Stranger uh, appears to him and basically tells him, like, hey, the whole reason that I brought you here is now. And he shows him this vision of uh, both Liz and Abby infiltrating some kind of base and then basically just being gunned down by armed guards. And uh, Cassidy's like, why would you show me that? And the stranger's basically like, because this is what you were here to prevent. This is a possible future, and the only person who can change this is you. So I was really co- I was really into the idea of that. I'm really excited to, uh, to get to hear... Um, if they end up like explaining like this is the reason this whole time Cassidy has been suffering in Murray, unable to leave just so he could intervene in this one uh, interaction or if there's a bigger role that he has to play. Um, speaking of bigger roles, we finally got what I think they what I thought initially that they were going to sidestep, which is the revelation that Swamp Thing is not, in fact, Alec Holland. Swamp Thing, just like the comics, is just a plant-based being that took on the 
memories and identity of Alec Holland. Um, while dissecting him, Woodrow basically tells him, like, there's no way that a human a human could just like morph into you there's no biological components that transfer over you are your own being and you're not alec holland and so that was really really cool um i didn't think they were going to do that after the first episode because it really they really sold the idea that alec holland was being transformed into swamp thing but um yeah, I, I, I like that a lot. Uh, we also followed up on the uh, Maria and Avery subplot, which I think has been fine uh, the last couple episodes. Um, it's really kind of taken a back seat to um, Avery's machinations with Swamp Thing and all of the uh, Conclave stuff kind of coming to the forefront. I think this is, their story is probably the, uh, the worst off because of the episode count. Uh, getting cut down from 13 episodes to 10, I think a lot of their stuff had to be kind of accelerated because um, I can't even remember. We haven't seen her in a while, but we uh, the little girl, the little girl that was uh, staying with them now ever since Maria decided to adopt her, Susie. So um, we didn't get a follow-up on her. Theoretically, Susie's still living in their house, and we haven't seen her in a while and maria's whole thing um on her being like oh i gotta you know kill avery and take over this business kind of felt um disjointed from her intentions for the rest of the season um with Susie being introduced and all that stuff so i think that's probably one of the things that got cut when they tried to truncate the uh the time to get everything that the main beats that they wanted to get in here but in this episode they moved her story forward by having avery basically lock her up in an in a psychiatric ward so uh we probably won't get a follow-up on that which is sad because that's really interesting with her also having dealt with uh being haunted and hallucinating her daughter shauna so i'm not sure exactly what's going to happen there but the big story of this episode is blue motherfucking devil uh blue devil finally makes his appearance dan cassidy finally turns into the blue devil and he shows up to the facility that uh they're keeping swamp thing that liz and abby have infiltrated and um he just wrecks shop he just is ripping guys in half left and right burning them like he is blue devil at his most destructive here and uh, he does end up kind of running off into the night so i don't know if they're gonna follow up with him uh next episode or if not i guess we'll have to wait and see uh meanwhile abby and liz after being saved by blue devil go and rescue swamp thing who is just completely distraught i love the idea that um Swamp Thing is really like this whole revelation that he isn't Alec Holland really messes him up because that was one of the best stories in the comics was that re was that revelation that realization that he is not who he think thinks he is so I really enjoyed that and I really loved how they handled it here. Uh, meanwhile, speaking of Woodrue, he escapes after uh, Blue Devil starts tearing through the compound, but uh, he returns home with this idea that he is he's going to be able to cure his wife's disease and he shows up and unfortunately it seems like uh 
the dementia or the Alzheimer's or whatever disease that she has um, has taken a serious turn because she ends up overdosing on her medication because she, I guess she just kept forgetting that she'd already taken it or forgot what day it was. And um, the last that we see of them in this episode is Woodrow just clutching his wife in his arms as she's like visibly shaking from an overdose. So we're definitely going to get a follow up on that, I hope. Uh, next episode a lot of stuff is coming together um and then the fine the whole episode wraps up with uh, abby following swamp thing back to the swamp and swampy goes underneath the uh, the water and comes back up with the corpse of alex holland the skeleton um time has obviously passed so he's uh he is, his body has just decomposed and everything, but it's very clearly Alec Holland. And uh, that's where the episode wraps up. I was very surprised by this. I, um, I was just shocked, to be honest with you. So I really, uh, I really enjoyed this episode. I think with some of the, uh, the stuff that, the complaints that I was having in a couple of the previous episodes where I really wanted stuff to start having a forward momentum again this one kicked things into high gear and is a welcome change of pace for it and i'm really excited it gets me really excited to see what they're going to do with episode 10 because we have a bunch of loose ends to uh to kind of wrap up we've got uh avery and maria we've got woodrow and his wife we've got uh liz trying to figure out you know how can how she can expose avery we've got Susie, which i unfortunately don't think is going to get any kind of closure here um one of the mini arcs in this episode was matt just kind of spiraling and uh the last we see of him he gets in a really bad car accident so we don't know what's going on there so that's five uh, we need to see what's going on with the Conclave and the CDC and uh, Mr. Ellery, so that's six. And now um, Swamp Thing has to wrestle with the fact that he's not actually Alec Holland. So that is seven plot threads that they have to somehow wrap up next episode. So I'm excited to see if they stick the landing. Really looking forward to it. And there's just one episode left. So I will definitely be tuning in this Friday for the uh, final episode of Swamp Thing. But... Before we go, before we jump into our next segment, um, speaking of the last episode of Swamp Thing, um, we have to get a new focus for the next uh, segments going forward for the weekly review. So um, I've been thinking long and hard about it, going back and forth on what I want to review following the end of Swamp Thing. And while um, there's certain shows that I really want to check out, and I'm definitely going to be watching, I've been catching up on a lot of TV, um, I think this is the plan that I'm going to go with. This is the tentative plan. Um, so once Swamp Thing wraps up and we'll be doing our final edition of Swamp Thing next week, uh, we're going to be diving headfirst into The Boys. This is a... Uh, Amazon Prime show, uh, basically kind of focusing on the dark side of having superheroes in modern uh, society. So I'm really excited. That's going to be our next feature for the uh, for the weekly review. And following that, I wanted something that was a little bit shorter because following that, we're going to be jumping headfirst into the final season of Arrow. Arrow is, of course, ending with season eight this year, and it is just eight episodes. So I'm really excited. So that's going to be our uh, big kind of plan and then following that because I think 
I might be wrong, but I'm pretty sure the end of Arrow leads directly into Crisis on Infinite Earths. And that is pretty much going to wrap us up for the uh, for the year. So we've kind of got a traje trajectory. Why is that word so hard? A trajectory now. Uh, finishing up Swamp Thing, going into The Boys. Super excited. I... I haven't read the comic in God knows how long, but the show has been getting rave reviews, so we'll be kicking that off. And then uh, following that will be the final season of Arrow. I just, I have to do it for the final season of Arrow that kicked off the entire CWDC universe. Um, so yeah, and then we'll see how it crumbles and ends with Crisis on Infinite Earths, and that'll, I think, take us through the rest of the year. So now that we have a game plan, now that we have a... Uh, a battle strategy going in for the rest of the year when it comes to the weekly review. Uh, let me know what you've been thinking of Swamp Thing. Let me know if you've been checking it out, if you haven't been, um, if you're excited for any of the DC Universe shows coming up, if you're excited for the stuff that we're going to be talking about. Have you read The Boys? Have you uh, been tuning in each season of Arrow? Are you excited to see what they do for their final season? And are you excited for Crisis on Invented Earths? Because that's a huge thing, and we will definitely be covering it later on this year for the podcast for sure. So, let me know all of that. Of course, uh, let us know through the uh, any of the social media stuff, Instagram, Twitter, uh, or through email and yeah, so tune in, of course, next week for the final episode of Swamp Thing. And for now, let's jump over to this week's Comics Countdown. Ooh, welcome back to this week's Comics Countdown. This is the segment of our show where I tell you about the comics that I think you should be picking up this week. Whether it's at your local comic book shop, on Comixology, or however you get your comics, these are the ones I think you should take a look at. We'll be talking about each book's title, the creative team behind each book, as well as a brief synopsis of each book as well. And of course, each synopsis will be accompanied by my synopsis voices. If you have a synopsis voice you would like to request, feel free to do so on either of our social media as well as through email. Uh, before we get into the books, though, I've been thinking about adding something to this segment of our podcast. So I, because there are some, sometimes there are comics that I recommend checking out for this segment of the, of the show, and then I pick up the books, and then I want to talk about the books. I want to talk about the books every single time that I read them, but by the time that I finish reading them, the episode's already posted, I gotta wait until next week, and by next week I gotta talk about more comics. So, before I jump into this week's picks, this week's uh, comics that I think you should definitely be picking up, I'm going to add a little bit of a... Uh, a little bit of a look back into the previous week. So I'm going to do Eric's pick of the week, and that is going to be uh, positioned right before we go into this week's comics, so I can just talk about the comic, one comic each week that I really dug. And uh, last week, for our very first uh, Eric's pick of the week for last week, um, I gotta work on the title, we'll get there. But um, I chose House of X number one, written by Jonathan Hickman. Um, I just, man, so good. So freaking good. Um, this book, guys, this book was so weird and so 
um, different from what I was expecting. I don't know what I was expecting. Um, Jonathan Hickman seems to write differently depending on the property that he's working on. So I was not sure exactly what the book was going to be, but it was not anything like what the book ended up being. And I mean that in the best way because this book was so intriguing in its... Uh, in the handling of its characters, in its narrative, how it showed off certain things and held on to certain things. Um, real quick, I also want to talk about the art. Pepe Larraz uh, can't give Jonathan Hickman props without giving the artist Pepe Larraz uh, props as well. I'm not super familiar with his uh, art, but I super dug it in this issue really really enjoyed it um there's this underlying like cult mentality going into it i really really liked it um i'm always a fan of like fictional cult stories how that affects characters one of my uh one of my guilty pleasures is uh the following with kevin bacon um super underrated show really really good i haven't watched the uh the last season but i really need to spend some time and get back into it um but yeah i loved the issue it really places the x-men in a just prime position a seat of power if you will uh following the issue and i am so intrigued because certain characters acted um completely within their uh usual selves and certain characters like wolverine cyclops uh to name a couple act were acting way out of character and Jonathan Hickman's not the kind of guy who just doesn't understand his characters, so he just writes them out of character. He knows what he's doing, so there's a reason they were acting weird. Um, but of course, this is just issue one of six, and uh, this, along with one of the uh, picks for this week, is going to set up the huge direction that the X-Men are going to be going following these miniseries, and uh, I can't wait. I really, really can't wait. So, our first pick of the week of last week is uh, House of X number one of six. But that's last week. Let's talk about this week. We've got five books for you today, five books that I think are definitely worth your attention. Uh, let's kick it off with Avengers number 22, written by Jason Aaron with art by Stefano Caselli. Uh, this is heading into the next arc for the Avengers post- uh, War of the Realms. Last issue was kind of like a War of the Realms wrap-up for the Avengers, and I'm really excited because we're going to be talking about Ghost Rider. Um, let's jump into the synopsis, and then we'll uh, talk a little bit more following. The challenge of the Ghost Riders starts here. Robbie Reyes wants to get rid of the flame-headed monster inside him, so it's time to do the common-sense thing. Perform an exorcism on his car. Only problem is, Johnny Blaze, the King of Hell, has some plans of his own for the newest Ghost Rider and his Avengers friends. So yeah, we're doing Ghost Rider stuff. Uh, last time we saw Johnny Blaze was during the uh, Doctor Strange Damnation crossover uh, with the Midnight Suns and all of those uh, kind of more occult characters. And... Uh, Johnny Blaze basically unseated Mephisto as the king of hell at the end of that story, and that's where he's been since then. So I'm excited for them to kind of 
get back with him uh johnny blaze versus robbie reyes has always been a story i've been really interested in and uh with the announcement as we talked about earlier in the news segment of a new ghostwriter book i am super psyched to uh see where this book is gonna go so uh definitely check that out next up we have batman who laughs number seven of seven written by scott snyder and uh, art by jock this is it this closes out the book um, I have been kind of waiting for all of the issues to kind of collect themselves because this seems like a story that I is going to be better reading back to back to back. But um, I'm really excited because this story is going to lead into Year of the Villain. This is going to lead into Batman Superman. This is really leading into a lot of the DC uh, direction going forward for the next year. So let's jump into the synopsis here. It's the final showdown between Batman and the Batman who laughs. But how do you defeat a foe who knows your every instinct and every move? Bruce Wayne will have to outsmart Bruce Wayne in this ultimate test of good versus evil. You can't miss the finale to the epic miniseries that will tear up the very foundations of Gotham City. So yeah, um, this book has been fantastic. Scott Snyder and Jock together is always a winning combination, so definitely, definitely pick this book up. Next up, we have Captain America number 12, written by Ta-Nehisi Coates, with art by Adam Kubert. Um, I really want this book to pick up the pace. I know uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates is a bit of a slow burn when it comes to his stuff. He really wants to make sure you understand uh, the rules of his story before he starts kind of throwing them all over the place. But uh, we're 12 issues in, and I've really been waiting for it to kind of pick up. So I'm hoping that this issue uh, does that. So let's jump into the synopsis here. Captain of Nothing concludes. Captain America is a fugitive, so Captain America must disappear. But that doesn't mean that Steve Rogers has to give up the fight to prove his innocence and bring the true murderer to justice. It's time for Cap to try something new. So, that's really interesting. The, uh, the synopsis sounds really cool. Uh, we might see the return of Nomad. We might see a uh, U.S. agent pop up. I really, 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 really want this to be good because I love Cap. Um, I was really bummed when they decided to cancel the, uh, or I guess not specifically cancel, but end the uh, Mark Wade Chris Somney run and replace it with this. So I'm hoping that this issue picks up and gets us to where we need to go for uh the future of Cap when it comes to the comics. Next up, our big two. Our big two for this week. Uh, I normally do like a, a big one, the one you should pick up, but this week it's it's two for sure. And this one is Batman, Last Night on Earth, number two of three. Written by Scott Snyder with art by Greg Capullo. Once again, this is the this is the one last ride for Scott Snyder and Greg Capullo when it comes to Batman. This is wrapping up their stories, their storyline with Batman, the through line all the way from uh, Court of Owls till now. Um, the first issue was fantastic. It was really, really cool. It's got a lot of Mad Max vibes, so I am super digging it, and I'm really, really excited to see where they go with this. So let's jump into the synopsis here. The world has been destroyed. 
and Batman is on a quest to find out who's responsible. But when villains from his past begin to complicate things for the Dark Knight, he finds an unlikely ally in a place known as the Plains of Solitude. So, that's really interesting. Um, that kind of gives the uh, the idea that it might be Superman. I'm really excited. Uh, we haven't seen Superman yet, so I really want to know where he's been, how this whole catastrophe affected him, and where they're going to go next with this. It's only a three-issue um, miniseries, but all of the issues are in prestige format, so they're, they're thick, thick issues. So definitely look for some twists and turns like the twists we got from last issue in here. And finally, part two of our big two this week is Powers of X number one of six, written by Jonathan Hickman with art by R.B. Silva. So this is the companion piece, the two of the one-two punch with House of X. And uh, this seems like this book is going to be taking a bit of a different... Uh, approach than House of X. Um, did I say Powers of X? I guess it's Powers of Ten. So House of X, Powers of Ten, but they have it written Powers of X. I don't know why that's the way it is, but I'm hoping that they shed light on that in this first issue so that I can at least understand the title. But really excited about this. Uh, this is going to be your companion piece to, to House of X. And uh, yeah, let's jump into the synopsis here. Fear the future. Superstar writer Jonathan Hickman continues his revolutionary new direction for the X-Men. Intertwining with House of X, Powers of Ten reveals the secret past, present, and future of mutant kind, changing the way you look at every X-Men story before and after. You do not want to miss the next seminal moment in the history of the X-Men. So yeah, that's promising some big stuff. This almost seems like it's going to be like an anthology. Uh, kind of looking back at the history where House of X is looking forward. This uh, Powers of Ten is going to be looking back. So I'm really excited. Uh, art looks really cool. I love that they gave each book a different artist so that you can really get a flavor for each really excited really looking forward to this um it bugs me that i have to wait another week to get a follow-up to the craziness that was house of x but i'm sure this book is going to be just as enticing looking back on the history and kind of recontextualizing the stuff that happened there so to recap we have avengers number 22 batman who laughs number seven of seven captain america number 12 Batman Last Night on Earth, number two of three, and finally, Powers of Ten, number one of six. Let me know what you think of these books. If there are any books you think I missed out on, let me know. I love discovering new books, and I would love to find out if I missed any books for this week. And that is going to do it for this week's Comics Countdown. And that is it for this week's episode. I uh, would love to know what you guys think of everything that we talked about this week. Um, I'm looking into doing kind of a uh, like a mailbag uh, segment going forward following the uh, 
comics countdown so if you have questions for me whether it's you know asking about uh different stuff when it comes to comics if you have questions on stuff that you'd like to get answers to feel free to reach out to me through our instagram or through our twitter at geeksplained pod that's at geeksplained p-o-d or through email because i'm an old man and i still read emails to geeksplained at gmail.com um we recently reached over uh, 5,000 listens to the podcast, and I am blown away. Thank you so much. You folks have been super, super great. Um, I would love it if you could also uh, give us a, uh, a review, rate us on uh, iTunes, really helps us out, gets us out there, and allows us to grow and grow our audience so um there's my plug i'm gonna get it out of the way but um it really does help us out it really does help uh get us on the on the board and allows us to get into the uh get into the ears of more listeners just like you so um i would love to know what everyone thought of uh spider-man blue uh what everyone's been thinking about Swamp Thing, uh, the stuff that's upcoming. Are you excited about the stuff that's upcoming for the weekly review? I know I am. I'm really, really looking forward to it. Um, I'm really excited about my uh, my voice acting news as well. Um, it's been a big week. It's been a really, really big week. Um, and I really want to thank you for uh, going through Spidey Month with me. Um, I, I knew when I found out that uh, Spider-Man Far From Home was coming out this month that I wanted to do a full month dedicated to the wall crawler, and thanks to the support from all of you, I was able to do that. We were able to cover uh, many different aspects of the character from film to TV to video games, and finally uh, landing gracefully, might I add, with uh, the comics with Spider-Man Blue. Um, I would love to know what your favorite Spider-Man comic is, of course course i love finding out new comics um i will not say that i know every spider-man comic that's ever been so i love discovering new comics uh would love to have that conversation with you if you haven't read spider-man blue yet check it out it is worth a listen or a, a read i guess for sure and um yeah so next week it is august we are heading into the next month um Lots of good stuff in the pipeline. I've also got a couple guests that I'm really excited about uh, getting on the podcast here, and I hope you will be too. Uh, lots of stuff that we haven't done before in this podcast as well. So I'm looking forward to it. Um, let me know what you thought of the first ever uh, Geeksplain Spotlight. Name pending, as always. And um, let me know if there are other books that you think I should check out. I'm thinking of doing this, you know, once a month, having one episode a month that is just focused spotlighting a, uh, a graphic novel or a one-shot or a story that um, is near and dear to my heart. So I'm looking forward to doing that. I'm looking forward to doing lots of stuff in the uh, back half of 2019. So... Um, once again, tune in next week for more content from us. Uh, same geek time, same geek channel. But for now, for Geeksplain, this is Eric Azana. Thank you very much for listening. And we will see you next time. <laughs>